I find it quite difficult to speak briefly of Pather O'Donnell because he has lived such a many-sided life. One of the things I realised when I was writing a small book on him a few years ago is that everyone has his own Pather O'Donnell. To some, he is the author of half a dozen lively novels of Irish rural life and the controversial editor of The Bell, which ran from the early 1940s to the mid-1950s. To others, he was known as a political figure, one of the out-and-out Republicans who refused to compromise in the post-treaty years. And to yet others, he was simply the genial host of the unpretentious small house in Drumcondra Road, where he lived for many years, keeping open house in the West of Ireland tradition, rare, I think, now in middle-class Dublin, making the casual caller welcome at any hour of the day or night. The American author Bowyer Bell, in his book on the IRA, refers to Pather O'Donnell as the greatest agitator of his generation. I never heard Pather climb on a stone wall outside a church door and address the local parishioners, but I did hear him speak in public in Castlebar fairly recently, and it was an unforgettable experience. He apologised for sitting. He was over 80 at the time, but he then held an audience of over 200 spellbound for a full hour, talking quite casually but very clearly and moving from reminiscence to reminiscence as if he were sitting at his own fireside. I kicked myself afterwards for not having brought a tape recorder. Well, the Donegal of my early days was a very harsh kind of a world. Um, men went generally to Scotland for the summer, put in a bit of a crop and cut the turf. Women harvested the thing. Uh, women worked very hard. They reaped the, they reaped the oats. We dug the potatoes, but it was a gay life. But it was a hard life. Uh, people didn't contract debts; they just did without things. Um, for example, going to school, we all went to school in the bare and barefoot, and the most we could we managed in the way of boots would be towards the end of October. You get boots for the winter. But it was a pretty hard life, but it was a gay life. And looking back on it, I suppose old men look back, looking back over it, I think the one remembers most about it was his gaiety. Pather O'Donnell was born in the townland of Main Moor near Dunlow in County Donegal on the 22nd of February 1893. He was the fifth child of a large family of six boys and three girls. And there was an age gap of 17 years between himself and Barney, the youngest. His father had a five-acre farm. He worked also as a migrant labourer in Scotland during the summer and in winter in the local corn mill. He was passionately fond of music, played the fiddle and was even described as the greatest musician of the Rosses. Pather's mother was an ardent nationalist, a strong supporter of Paddy the Cope's cooperative movement and, like most Donegal mothers whose husbands were away for much of the year, a hard worker at home and the mainstay of the family. My own family was just uh, as poor as any of the neighbour families. The land was um, small fields. My father went to Scotland. An interesting thing, I remember an old man saying in Donegal, an old neighbour man saying, Nyakam a trampa rio in their own bear leg. And uh, no tramp going the road who spoke English. But the men of my father's generation, who also spoke Gaelic, would say Irish will only take you as far as Letter Kenny. 
and they felt the absence of the lack of knowledge of, well, my father spoke English fairly well, but quite a number of people who were found English difficult uh, found going to in Scotland that had handicapped them greatly. O'Donnell's first step towards a teaching career was an appointment as monitor, and in 1911 he got a scholarship to St. Patrick's Training College in Drumcondra, Dublin. I never particularly liked teaching, and I don't think I was much good at it either. Uh, um, Three of my uh, members of my family had already gone to um, England and I had to America, and I had uncles in Butte, Montana, and I think in the back of my mind I intended to go to, to America too, and the war broke out. The strange thing about my two years in St. Patrick's College is I don't remember anything that happened there that struck a, struck a match in my imagination anywhere except the, some of the recitations by McCarty Flint who was the professor of elocution but um, I, it, hadn't any, uh, it hadn't any effect on me my two years that were there two years there and I can't find any change in myself looking back I don't remember anything of importance happening O'Donnell returned to Donegal in 1913 and taught first on Inish Free Island, which is now deserted. It was very far from Dublin and the momentous events of the Larkinite strike of that year, but Pether was not unaffected. Funny enough, I was most aware of it through my mother, who was a very strongly pro-Larkinite person, and um, um, an uncle of mine was back from Butte, Montana, and he was a member of the IWW, and the first awareness I got of that kind of struggle, I think, came through them, through my mother and my uncle. I saw Connolly alive twice in Dublin. I didn't realize it was Connolly until afterwards I saw the face in postcards after his execution. The first time I saw him, he was being jeered at by a crowd of women as if we were calling him a bandy-legged militiaman. And the second time I saw him was on a Sunday morning in Phoenix Park when he was one of a group of speakers being pelted into the zoo with rotten fruit. And uh, these, uh, these were the only two times I saw him. Pether began his literary career while he was teaching on Aaron Moore Island during the years of the First World War. Aaron Moore also introduced him to the problems of the migratory labourers and the tatty hokers, as they were called, who set out annually for the farms and bothies of Scotland. Willie Dernan, a neighbour of Pathers from near Dunlow, an old IRA man and associate of Paddy the Cope, sums up the Donegal feeling about his work for the migrants. He was uh, a great man altogether because he uh, even went over himself to find out the conditions uh, that existed. And it wasn't a hearsay job with him at all. Uh, he seen for himself and he was able to... Know, he knew what he was talking about when he went to make representation on their behalf. And he'd done all he possibly could do. And that, uh, to my mind, that, that was a good... Uh, the instigation of changing the whole atmosphere a lot better than what it was previous to that. The first night I spent on straw in a, in a barn in Scotland, or in a buyer rather it was, been cleaned out and the stalls were whitewashed and through the bedding and the clean, good clean straw was much better than, than stored 
mattresses because the mattresses were damp, but the clean straw was good and healthy. But uh, when I was there first, I was first of all inclined to be very indignant that our, our own people were accepting such conditions. And then I shifted from that to be angry with the merchant who offered the conditions. But eventually my mind settled on that the really real culprits were the people at home who uh, developed an economy that, that forced people to hold on to homes in Ireland by their seasonal earnings in Scotland. So that it was the, it was the so- social structure at home that was to blame for the fact that they had to go and live that way. The social conditions of the migratory workers were bad enough, but they had to endure even worse when 19 of them were drowned on the last stage of their journey between Burton Port and Aaron Moore in 1935. The world says it was a rock, wrote Pather O'Donnell, and the world says put up a beacon, and the world says it was a fog, but it was not a rock, it was society. The world has spelled out one of its crimes in corpses. They died because they were poor. The attitude of the people towards the housing was pretty much the attitude of the fellows in the trenches. They had to earn money for a period to hold out a home in Ireland and they were put up with any conditions in Ireland that would enable them to do that. You wrote quite an amount, Padder, about the two disasters, the Aaron Moore disaster and the, the Kirkon Tillock. Uh, what was your attitude to those? Well, one's attitude towards one sympathy was directly aroused, but also the the indignation at that people. Uh, in the in, I didn't blame the I didn't look on it as an accident. It was the coercion of the conditions on the people left a very thin margin of safety. And, uh, I think I, I, in the in the Iron Moore disaster, I said. And the people said it was a rock, but it wasn't a rock, it was society. I was very indignant, and I've always been very indignant at the conditions that were forced on the on the seaboard. And uh, when uh, when we got a measure of control over our own person, there was no real serious attitude towards the western seaboard. It, uh, it might have been difficult, but... It was, it was, and there was really no attitude towards it. There was an attitude towards building up industry over the towns, but there was complete neglect of the Western Seaboard. The social conscience and commitment of Pedro O'Donnell comes through in all his writings. His first two books, Storm and Islanders, dealt with the life he knew on the Western Seaboard. Both were written partly in jail, and both are to an extent autobiographical. Storm, published in 1926, got its title from the Great Gale which struck the west coast of Ireland in November 1919, and its subtitle, A Story of the Irish War, indicates its link with the political storms of the period. The people of Aaron Moore recognised themselves in these books, they read them and found them authentic. They do, they do read them uh, and from the very first books, The Storm, I don't know if there's some the more recent ones I read, but they're in the bookshops and they have been handed about from house to house. And of course, the people of Aaron Moore would have a special interest in him. They would, because he was there as a teacher, I think, from for about 1914 to about 1918, and it was there he was when he started first agitating 
for reorganization of the tatty conditions or the, the conditions of tatty hookers or potato workers across in Scotland. And he's, for a man who only spent four years or three years on the island, I thought he had a great insight into the island life and island conditions as is exemplified in his books, like elders. I never took myself too seriously as a writer, but while I was in solitary confinement in Finner Camp uh, for a period, I discovered that my mind used to escape out the windows to, to escape the aridity of the cell to boats and islands and things that I liked, and um, Islanders practically wrote itself in my mind. And I think I'm not at all a literary person, uh, at least I'm not terribly much interested in writing, but I think I discovered wh how it is that people write. I think that in your formative days, you get a series of vivid impressions that open on aspects of your open on to aspects of your environment, and that writing is just the gift of getting back to these windows and uh, running a theme through that environment. And uh, when I was a boy, I used to go with my father often to fish out at Inniscare Island, and the best time for fishing was a little just around about dawn, and I was very impatient at the way the dawn would was slow to uncover its, the, the, the sea. And uh, you'll find that in the opening, uh, the opening sentence, that, that impatience reflected in the opening sentences um, in, 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 in Islanders. I never took myself too seriously as a writer is a typically self-effacing remark by Peather O'Donnell on his own work. A comment from Grattan Fryer, author of a short biography in the Irish Writers series for Bucknell University Press. He himself would play down this side of his life. He always insisted to me that he had no ambitions in this field. His pen was simply a weapon in the war for the better society he envisaged, the Workers' and Small Farmers' Republic. I do not think he was fair to himself in this judgment. I believe his books are much underrated. Among the underrated books, says Grattan Fryer, are Adragool, published in 1929, and The Knife, published in 1930. The first of these is a wonderfully vivid picture of the days of the old hiring fairs in Donegal and of the hardships of country life in the days of revolution and civil war. It's a sombre book. Pather told me the idea came to him when he read in a newspaper of how, somewhere in the south of Ireland, the inhabitants of an isolated farmstead had been ostracised by their neighbours on account of their political leanings. When the man of the house emerged from jail, he found his family dead from hunger. Pather took this incident, imagined what had led up to it, then set the action in the Donegal country where he knew the people's ways and their dialect and could build a harsh but realistic picture. The knife also deals with the impact of the troubled times on a rural community where Orangeman and Gale live side by side in uneasy rivalry. As a Donegal man and a natural good mixer, Pather knew both sides and for all his republicanism he never underestimated the stubbornness of the Orangemen. He often told me that in his view they were the only real fighters in Ireland. Pather O'Donnell was appointed organiser of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union in Monaghan, Cavan, Tyrone and Derry in 1917, and he gave up his teaching job around that time. Later he was in charge of the 2nd Brigade of the Northern Division of the IRA, with five battalions and a flying column under his command in the north-east Donegal area. His brother, Barney O'Donnell, recalls one occasion on which he was wounded. I remember old Paddy the Cope. He was taken home here wounded. 
and Paddy looking at the wounds and he said, oh my God, Father, another wee bit and you'd have been finished. Oh, damn it, Paddy said, another wee bit and it wouldn't, damn thing wouldn't hit me at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's uh, another way of looking at yes. it, yeah. Yes, I think he had been hit in two or three places. Paddy was wounded on one other occasion during the War of Independence, but he was never captured by the British. He saw the struggle to break the connection with England as a preliminary to freeing the Ireland of the poor from hardship and exploitation. The Treaty of 1921 he regarded as a betrayal of principles, a compromise by a group who were prepared to accept something less than full freedom. Even on the Republican side, to his way of thinking, the number of genuine radicals or socialists was few. Now, by that time I was Brigade O.C., and therefore I had to take a, make, I was senior enough to say for or against the treaty, and I said against, and uh, that pushed me along into the executive of the IRA, and uh, um, we were a pretty poor body, because in the absence of any working class leadership, I don't think that we could do more than say to the treaty, no but I don't think we were the makings of a revolutionary movement. I was very close to Liam Mellows. Um, I got very close to Liam Mellows in jail, and I was really quite startled when he uncovered the content of his mind because he had never spoken in that way outside. Um, if he had shown his mind clearly earlier on, I think he would have had a great impact on the whole anti-treaty position. The only other person that I have known and that I knew on the anti-treaty side who had views that uh, in anybody else with more aggression would have forced him into the front and, and into leadership was Paddy Rutledge. I think he was a very much underestimated man. I think my attitude towards the Free State Government uh, was simply that we wouldn't accept the treaty. I, I did realise, I think, that a great many of the people who said no to the treaty had different views from me. They were quite, and this is a factor that I think has never been sufficiently stressed in dealing with the resistance to the treaty. I think there were, there were n many men like Michael Kilroy, Billy Pilkington, Tom Maguire of Mayo, and others too, who had taken an oath, having taken an oath of, of loyalty to the Republic and having killed in defence of it and spouses of theirs having died in defence of it, I just think that their vow to the Republic, their vote to the Republic was a sort of a vow that they couldn't um, shed themselves of and uh, they were the kind of people that were bound to say no and would have to be fired on to come down from the high ground of the Republic to their own level of the treaty. They were the kind of men who make martyrs, but I don't think they make revolutions. In the Battle of the Four Courts in Dublin, which opened the Civil War, Pether O'Donnell was captured, was imprisoned by the Free State authorities, and went on a 41 days hunger strike. His book, The Gates Flew Open, published in 1932, commemorates that period of his life. I think hunger striking is a daft business, it's a kind of jail hysteria, and I would have thought that the lesson of our hunger strike of 1923-24 was that hunger strike should be discarded as a weapon. It's not an Irishman's weapon at all. 
I remember the hunger strike quite clearly, of course. Um, first of all, about the gates flew open. It was a pot boiler written at a time when I couldn't think of anything else to write. Uh, I think that the, the, that's a period that's passed into folklore, and uh, maybe my book contributes to the folklore. But um, uh, nobody could treat us well in prison. We um, we would wreck any jail we went into. We gave knocks and took them. In the spring of 1924, Padre O'Donnell escaped from internment in the Curragh and resumed his political activities. In particular, he was concerned at this period with the haemorrhage of emigration from the West and with the failure of a native government to bring about the expected revolution. I remember talking, speaking with some person with a great deal of responsibility for what happened within Fianna Fáil, and I taunted them with the fact that during their regime, nearly a million Irish-born people uh, went to, out of the country. And I said, oh, be fair now, even you had been in a position of power, you would, they would have gone too. And I said, yes, a million people might have gone, but they would not have been the same people. And what really outrages me is that I go back to the areas that supported the men on the run, and I find that they're the deserted ones. We went by the the the, the main walls and quartered ourselves from the poor people, and uh, we didn't realize that the landowners were secretly coming to Dublin and being assured that the structures wouldn't be disturbed and that their possession of their holdings wouldn't be disturbed. We fought, I suppose, the greatest, it was the most sham attempt at revolution that's ever been attempted in, our, in any country, our, uh, our uh, insurgent movement against the British. We actually sent them embassies to America to collect a million dollars and we were paying three and a half million pounds across the British Exchequer. Can you imagine people seriously thinking they were they were fighting a war against the British and at the same time paying over annually the land annuities? I went away to America in 1926. I came back in 1929. I wasn't a week home when uh, I wasn't aware of anything. Uh, there was other things that happened while I was away that was talked about, but there was no war talked about uh, uh, non-payment of rent and land annuities. When I was sleeping one morning, I found a terrible noise outside. And when I looked out the window, there were two or three uh, policemen or guards, and I wondered what they were doing. And you know what they were doing? They were seizing cattle for, for rent. Your own cattle. My own cattle. I asked what you was hadn't it? paid, of course. Well, my father hadn't paid. Mm-hmm. My father was an old man, he went to jail, he served his time in, in Derry jail, or not in Derry jail, but uh, Sligo. He went to uh, Sligo, there was a prison in Sligo that time, and he was sentenced because he wouldn't pay land annuities. The cattle were seized and they were taken to Dunlow, and uh, they would uh, be offered for sale there. You understand? If they weren't redeemed, you got the option to redeem them. But it cost a terrible lot to redeem them. It would cost, uh, you know, in them days, money was scarce. And that was the equivalent then of paying your rent, in fact, for... Oh, you used to go to court then. You would be brought to court then. And uh, everybody got a share out of it. And the bailiff, the judge, 
and uh, court clerks and all. It had to cover all expenses when you covered that expenses along with the rent, whatever rent, rent was on you. Uh, when you covered that, well, you redeemed, you got your cattle back. What did God did, do? How will I tell you now? God be merciful to Paddy the Cope. He was just equally as good as Paddy. He didn't let no cattle away. He was there with the money to redeem. You know, he redeemed very near everybody's cattle. And Paddy was there to and advise Pat, people what and to do. And Paddy was there for to advise people what to do. And uh, that was, uh, the, as far as I knew, he advised them what to do. And eventually... Uh, when things changed, all was won out. Uh, we were sending over a terrible lot, as everybody knows, of money every year in land annuities over to Ireland. And for that, when that or to Britain, and when uh, that money was retained at home, it done an immense lot of good. That was the beginning of prosperity. We saw the, the money that was going over to it was utilised to grow wheat, to reclaim land, to do everything throughout the country, and that was. What happened? Well, you would say Padre O'Donnell was the O'Donnell mover was, and all that. Padre O'Donnell was a good, a good help to have. He was the foresight, and and the northwest, as far as I uh, know about that. And of course, Padre went to jail himself. And Padre was in jail. Padre didn't think he had about jail. Padre was out and into jail like a blackbird. Padre O'Donnell started his uh, small farmer no annuity no rent campaign in Tyrconnell and he was gathering support there a good deal and he was gathering support in the County Clare a good deal he was gathering support in various places with great assistance from Colonel Moore in fact Pather always puts three quarters of the credit on Colonel Moore but then that's like Pather but uh, that pressure about the land annuities campaign entered into the Republican Army a bit. We, Pather and I, tried to get the Republican Army to back it officially, but they never did. They never would see things quite that way. They didn't want to make a complete break with the little middle class backing that they still had. And they just didn't see things in the same view at all. And uh, um, eventually, uh, it really, it was the strength of the, of the backing that de Valera's own followers in County Clare gave to that uh, land and that no annuities campaign that uh, persuaded Dev to go in behind it. And like all the things that I started, it didn't start on any theoretical basis. A man that I had often taken shelter with and had fed us uh, came to me com uh, complaining that he was going to be pursued for arrears of land annuity and I felt something should be done about it. And in fact, I was on the cha at the chapel gate on the following Sunday, and um, out of that concrete beginning began the struggle for, for land annuities. I wanted the IRA to come into the land annuity uh, uh, fight. You see, I held that there were two kinds of guerrilla warfare, that we had fought the wrong kind of guerrilla warfare in as much as small groups of armed men had been chased around the country by the forces of the state. There's another kind of guerrilla warfare where the forces of the state come out into warfare against the people, in which case it's the forces of the state that will disintegrate. And if the land annuity thing had been adopted by the IRA 
as a basis for resistance, the free state army would have to come out behind the bailiff and uh, they would have found it very un a lot of the fellows would have revolted and we would certainly have built up a mass movement that I think could have had quite uh, possible revolutionary possibilities. Heather O'Donnell went to jail for the second time in 1927 for his part in the land annuities agitation. He has told the story in his book, There Will Be Another Day, Grattan Friar. Heather says that this is the book he enjoyed writing most, and I would suspect it refers to the happiest period of his life. It's an account of the campaign to rouse the country people to the struggle over the land annuities, which led to the economic war with England in the 1930s. This is not the place to go into political details, but the book describes the author bicycling into remote Donegal glens, rowing out to the offshore islands and the characters he met. This was a fight joyfully fought, where no one got really hurt, though there may have been, since they were, these were still troubled times, the odd broken head. Let me just give one instant in Pather's own words. It concerns someone called Black James Duanin, who went to jail for not paying rent, and who was presented with £25 gathered by a busybody when he came out. Black James thanked the man who handed in the money. He asked him to thank every person who put a red penny into this fine gift and to say that he himself thanked them from his heart. It was clear that he was deeply moved. Up went the shaggy old head. Thank them and give them their money back. I went to jail for a principal. I could have paid the annuities and the arrears. What did Pather do? He says, I just looked on in a flood of tears, feeling a fool and in my own way rejoicing I was there to see what I saw. I was from 1922 until 1934. I was continuously on the controlling body of the IRA and I was also editor of the Publa. And I think I have to admit I used the, used the Publa in the most unscrupulous way to push forward my own views uh, on the thing and why it was that I wasn't sacked I just don't know I'm quite certain that there must have been quite a number of caucus meetings but it never came on to the agenda of the council of the council meeting that they should sack the editor of the of the public I was let go my own way I believe that any organization that doesn't have some sort of a sheet is pretty dumb and we formed uh, um, Frank Ryan edited the Republican Congress, which was uh, the organ of that movement while it lasted. But once we found that it couldn't lift, that it couldn't raise um, uh, a discernible working-class factor, I dissolved the Republican Congress because it couldn't get anywhere. After the change of government in 1932, Pedro O'Donnell and I and David... Fitzgerald and others tried to get Sarah revived. I was keen on it at the time. I'm not at all so keen on it now as a theory. It was some a party being organised, whereas I think the occasion called for something on a bigger scale than that. And Pather and David died, I regret to say, and Pather and I and some others kept pressing within the Army Council for a new departure in the shape of a united front movement with working class and small farmer organisations. 
to set the, a, a republican movement going definitely on that basis in which the republican army would simply think of itself as the fighting force if it became necessary for that popular agitation. Uh, that was a change from thinking of the IRA as a thing to organise a party, thinking of it then just as the spear point of a popular agitation. But we wanted that. Eventually it was put to a, to a general army convention and the headquarters staff was so much against it they were able to, to outvote the elected delegates who were most of them for the air move, but uh, we, Pether and I, and a great many others, left the IRA after that. George Gilmore, who was associated with O'Donnell both in the Republican Congress and in the anti-blue shirt campaign of the early 30s. The next great event which involved the forces of right and left was the Spanish Civil War of 1936. Grattan Freyard again. I already knew him as a speaker on behalf of the anti-Franco forces. I think I had been introduced to him by either Hannah or Owen Sheehy Skeffington, and like many a young man at the time, I had a notion I would go and strike a blow against fascism in Spain before it spread through Europe. I went to Pather's house in Dublin to meet Frank Ryan and join the International Brigade. I remember Pather was not too eager for me to enlist. He told me very solemnly that young men like me were needed to work for the revolution here in Ireland. But he did nothing to prevent me. He told me to take warm underclothes, the first hint I had that it might not be the romantic adventure in the sunny south I envisaged, and for a long time I had the uncouth pair of long johns I solemnly bought but never wore. Frank Ryan, I remember, was a rather dour, taciturn figure, but this was probably because he was almost deaf, which made communication difficult. I'm afraid I did not get to Spain, I got as far as Paris, where I developed what today would be known as a psychosomatic illness, but that's another story. Clearly, I was not the stuff of which heroes are made. I suppose I must have been considered expendable, because later I heard another story of a young man who went to Pather to enlist for Spain. He was the son of an old friend of Pather's, and Pather gave him a warm letter of recommendation which he was to present to the recruiting officer in Liverpool. Strangely, when he got to Liverpool, he found the letter did not produce the desired effect. There were endless obstacles and mysterious difficulties made over his enlistment. It was only many years later that he heard that Pather, immediately after giving him the letter of warm recommendation, had written to his friend in Liverpool to say, on no account to enlist this young man, since he was urgently required for the cause at home. It was the same person, an Ackill man, who, when I was working on my book, described Pather to me as a man of very great compassion. He told me the story of how, when a family fell sick of Scarlatina on the island, this must have been when hospitals were not as general as they are now, none of the islanders would go near to him. Pather and his wife went daily to the house, cooked and emptied the slops and looked after the animals until all were back in the whole of their health. With the modesty I always found typical of him, Pather brushed this incident aside when I reminded him of it. Grattan Freyer recalls another incident in Pather's association with Ackle, an island to which he was particularly devoted. When we were children, we used to spend summer holidays in Mulrani, and my father had old friends on Ackle Island who used to kidnap me. I was, of course, very glad to be kidnapped for the odd weekend. 
I cannot remember whether I actually laid eyes on him then, but Pether, who had a house on Ackill, was an almost legendary figure on the island in the early 1930s. This was a time when there was a most extraordinary wave of anti-communist hysteria all over Ireland. I say extraordinary because it has always seemed clear to me that the preconditions for any real communist revolution, such as developed in Eastern Europe or in Spain, were eliminated in Ireland by the land acts of the 1890s. Anyway, there was a particular parish priest on Ackill who was not only anti-communist, but anti-women who wore short skirts, that meant then exposing the hint of a knee, and even anti-young men who wore shorts. Well, Pather was branded as a red on account of his IRA activities, as well as his obvious left-wing sympathies. And when he came to live on the island, he was denounced from the altar. But he gave as good as he got. He was already known on Ackill from the work he had done to improve the lot of the migrating potato harvesters in Scotland, and he was not short of supporters. In one of his more light-hearted novels, On the Edge of the Stream, he used what he called a ringside seat at a local agitation as the basis for a story of those days. Heather O'Donnell's part in establishing and editing that lively journal of life, literature and politics, The Bell, must rank as one of his great achievements. But of his work on it, too, he was, as usual, diffident. I don't remember exactly what was the circumstance. Probably somebody, some conversation started up the idea in my mind that we could do a magazine. And uh, I was lucky enough to reach Joe McGrath about it. That's the funny thing about Dublin, you know, there are strange people that are quite prepared to react in a very generous way to proposals like that. And uh, I would think that if the writers of Dublin had, if I had been wise enough to, say, involve the whole culture of the Academy of Letters and went to Joe McGraw with them, I really fancied that we could have managed to get a publishing house set up. He was a strange person, Joe McGraw, with great impulse of generosity in him, you know, good impulses. And the family were pretty much like him. So that once it was started, it kept, it kept going on. Sean O'Fallon was the editor of the magazine. I was to hold it together. I was good hand at scrounging advertising and so on. And uh, I don't think I ever talked with Sean O'Fallon about the idea what the content of the magazine was to be. Sean was the editor, and that was that. I, I never, I'm certain, I never once uh, discussed the content with Sean O'Fallon. It was a full-grown man by the time I took it over and uh, set in its ways. And the best I could do was try and keep in step with what Sean O'Fallon created. Uh, had I been creating the bell, of course, it would have been a different kind of a magazine. It would have been closer, or we might call it, it have been more of a Sherodiism in it. And uh, it would just be as difficult for Sean O'Fallon to take over a magazine that I had created as it was for me to take over with Sean O'Fallon. He gave it its high level, its high literary content, gave it the recognisable get it going, and made it the important magazine that it was. Sean was very good in that way. You see, the admission of young writers at a high level of technical skill and... and, uh, and uh, exciting content, Sean had a great eye for that. And uh, I think that was important to them. And I think there was also a very interesting um, um, piece of experience, uh, inference can be drawn from it. In 1940, with the paper shortage in England, there was a space here for an Irish magazine. 
And I really think that unless you manage to bring to create, set up a quota to keep the glossy magazines in check, that you're not going to find it easy to promote a purely Irish uh, magazine, an Irish literary magazine. And they have the same experience in Canada, where the pulp magazines from the States come in in such quantity that it's quite impossible to create an individuality in, in Canada for Canadian writers. Heather O'Donnell's achievement as a writer, as a Republican, a socialist, a reformer, is something that will continue to be discussed and assessed for many years to come. But as he and his friends celebrate his 90 years, memories are of the man and the personality who left such a mark on the literary and political life of this country. By any standard, he was, and is, one of the great Irishmen of his generation. As a politician, a revolutionary, a vigorous polemicist, Padre O'Donnell was uncompromising and even harsh in his judgment of those he felt to have fallen by the way. But to the best of my knowledge, he never made a real enemy. Perhaps this was due to the impish sense of humour, which has been another feature of the man. Let me give a final anecdote to illustrate this. On one occasion, Pather had gone to listen to a visiting prelate who had come to fulminate against communism in Pather's home area. There was some mix-up over who was to see the speaker back to his hotel after the meeting, and Pather happened to be outside the hall when his reverence emerged. Seeing his hesitation, Pather winked at a friend who chanced to have a car handy, opened the door with a flourish, jumped in beside the priest, and began pointing out the local sights as the friend drove to the hotel. Later that evening, the priest said to his real host, who had arrived just in time to see this car drive off, that there was one person he'd like to lay eyes on, that blackguard Pather O'Donnell. But you were in the car with him, said his bewildered host. 